0: You're listening to The American Scald, a musicology podcast. Hello everyone and welcome back to The American Scald's Nordic Musicology Podcast. Before we get started today, I wanted to put out a question to you all. What else would you like to see on this channel, be it in podcast form or in YouTube videos? I ask because while this podcast right now and for some time has focused on classical music history, it is not all I want to be doing, as I don't think that really you know, does justice to the broader scheme that is Nordic music culture. My goal is to make the podcast, YouTube channel, the subreddit, and my website just a place in general for people to come to learn about and talk about the wonderful world of Nordic music. In thinking about where else I could take this American Scald project, I really would love to hear from some of you, regardless of if you're new or if you've been around here for a while. You can email it to me at Scald at gmail dot com, leave it in a comment on the Instagram post or this YouTube video, or direct message me on Instagram, or even leave it in the lounge post on the subreddit. I can't wait to hear from you. With that out of the way, let's get on with the show. Now, some of you may have noticed that despite being a podcast about classical music, there's been very little talk of symphonies here, the seemingly quintessential genre of the art form. By now we've spoken at length about how classical music is an art form dependent on time, leisure, money, and education to thrive, and this is magnified tenfold in the context of making a symphony. A symphony is not an easy thing to write, an easy thing to play, an easy thing to conduct, or even an easy thing to coordinate. It isn't chamber music where you get two to five friends together and enjoy an evening of making music for an audience of friends or family, or maybe even no audience at all. Though there are chamber orchestras which average at around 25 members, your average symphony orchestra runs anywhere from 50 to 100, with Mahler topping it out at 1,000. What a show-off. And symphonies are hard stuff to play, so you have to find 50 to 100 relatively good musicians who all have their own instruments. Then, on top of this, you have to find a conductor which, trust me, does way more than just swing their arms around and is central to the whole act of putting a symphony together. Then you need a space to accommodate all of those instruments, with a large enough auditorium to sit the expected audience to at least break even in the ticket sales. Then, you have to have musicians that are practicing the parts on their own time, outside of rehearsals. Which, optimistically, you would have two or three rehearsals of the piece altogether before showtime. So imagine Norway putting all of this together when it's two biggest cities are hardly even cities at this point compared to the rest of Europe, and you might see why the first Norwegian symphony didn't come around until 1861, with my favorite name in Norwegian music history, Otto Winterhelm, straight out of a Norsemith. Or Skyrim, depending on your background. Though he does have the Nord beard to match. Now Otto Winterhelm has a hazy past so you may see that you're going to have a bad time trying to learn more about him in English. But lucky for you kind listeners, I did the legwork and translated Norwegian sources on him because, well, that's my job. But interestingly enough, even with the Norwegian sources, I come up with very little substance on the guy. But luckily, I was able to piece together enough of his life story for us to learn at least a little bit about Norway's first enigmatic symphonist who happened to have a career plagued by missteps and misfortune. Otto Winterhelm was born in Christiania in 1837, and like Alabol, was meant to study theology while also taking music lessons, but he took lessons for the piano rather than the violin. As luck would have it, Winterhelm's teacher was our friend Halfdan Kerolf, who only after a few hours of lessons urged Otto to give up theology and devote himself to music, which led him to Leipzig Conservatory in 1857, the same conservatory where Grieg would attend. While at the Leipzig Conservatory, he would earn himself a scholarship which would allow him to receive training in Berlin as well, and it was in Berlin where he wrote his first symphony and string quartets. His first symphony debuted in 1862 in Christiania to overwhelmingly positive response, and he was even compared to Mendelssohn or Schumann. With this critical acclaim, he quickly set to work on his second symphony with the goal of embodying a true Norwegian identity through music. This goal can be found simply in the symphony's subtitle, Viking Life. The underlying Norwegianist themes in the symphony and Winterhelm's success as a composer and conductor led him to the prospects of starting a national music program. But the ultimate motivation for his establishment of Norway's first national music program was actually when his friend Edvard Grieg settled in Christiania after his long-time stay in Leipzig and Copenhagen. Now keep in mind that this basic idea of a national music program was being subconsciously exercised by composers before him, and would continue all the way through the 20th century to even today, but Winterhjelm wanted more than a vision. He wanted an actual program to nurture and cultivate musical Norwegianism under the guiding philosophy that Norwegian music needed to draw influence from its native folk roots. But the rub, so to speak, that Winterhelm was seeing is that in order for Norwegian art music to also have international significance, not just insular to Norway, it must learn how to adapt the folk influence into larger, more cosmopolitan art forms such as the symphony. Simply, he believed that the core of Norwegian art music should always be Norwegian in rhythm, theme, melody, and mood, but needs to evolve to stay relevant in the world of art music at large, an ideal that Winterhelm himself would not achieve in his life. However, Grieg, as we will learn in the coming weeks, did take up that torch and succeeded enormously. Evident, of course, in the lasting impact and influence of Grieg's work on even modern-day media. So after Vinterhjelm wrote an incredibly long article in the newspaper welcoming Grieg into the city, as Vinterhjelm was also a very active journalist and music critic, he and Grieg joined forces to expand the music school into an academy. Unfortunately, however, Grieg both didn't like Christiania and was being called all over Europe to give concerts, so after just a short while, he left Vinterhjelm to run it all by himself, because it also wasn't really gaining that much traction. Eventually, he had to give up the program altogether because of how little support it had, which really is a shame because if he had kept it going just a few more years, I really do believe it would have gained much more support towards the end of the century, especially in the wake of Grieg's international acclaim. So after the crushing blow to his vision of educating the next generation of Norwegian musicians, Vinterhjelm continued his career as a music critic and a chamber music composer, mostly for hymns and songs which were enjoying huge popularity at the time, remember Norway's affinity for chamber music over concert music. He would actually be one of Lindemann's first opponents, as we discussed in Lindemann's episode, because Winterhelm, just like Grieg, took issue with how Lindemann treated his folk arrangements in ways that in some ways killed the essential Norwegian character of the tunes, in a way that we would call appropriation today. Now, because of his preoccupation as a critic and journalist over composition, Otto Winterhelm's name unfortunately faded into obscurity over the last 150 years outside of Norway and even Scandinavia. And I hope that one day we can manage to cobble together some more recordings of his music, especially considering he was one of the first pioneers of serious music education in Norway, not just lessons, a music academy. I do feel bad for the guy to some extent, for as I mentioned, if he just maybe waited 5 or 10 years more on that music program, He would probably be remembered as a significant icon of Norwegian music history the same way that Grieg was, but the Norwegian public just simply wasn't ready for that sort of national music energy. Evidence of this claim, of course, can be backed up with the story of Johan Svensson, who we will learn about next week. And so friends, that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the American Skald's Nordic Musicology Podcast. Please remember to give me some feedback on what sort of content you'd love to see on the channel, and be sure to leave a review, comment, and subscribe, as it helps my analytics immensely. You can also donate monetarily to the show at ko the American theamericanscald, which you can find a link to in the show notes and the video description. So please join us over at r nordicsound or follow me on Instagram as well. Let's try and create a vibrant Nordic music community together, and I look forward to seeing you on next week's episode of the American Scald's Nordic Musicology Podcast. Thank you.